Welcome to Energy Radio. This is Season 2, Episode 1, a new beginning for Energy Radio and in some ways uh, a bit of an ending, ironically at the same time. Um, and before I get into some of that, I will welcome for the last time my co-host, Lisa Katz. Lisa, welcome. Thank you very much, Matt. It's uh, It feels a little strange to have this as the, uh, the last one, but uh, it is what it is. Why don't you tell the listeners why it's the last one and uh, yeah. share your news with the world? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was offered a position, a VP of business development position with Convergent Energy and Power. So they're a battery energy storage and solar PV developer, owner and operator. And uh, yeah, it was a good opportunity to really advance my career and uh, well, carry forward really everything I've learned from CEM, you know, forward. So uh, looking forward to it, but at the same time, sad to leave my CEM family that I've learned so much from and have uh, spent a lot of time with over the last uh, six years. So, yeah. And and listeners, if you're hearing sniffles in Lisa's voice, she assures <laughs> us it's not emotion, but we know otherwise. Uh, but certainly we are also uh, sad to Lisa, see Lisa go and she's uh, been with us for uh, basically six, just over six years and uh, a very good six years and did a lot of fun things uh, with us and, and, and for us and for our clients, most importantly. And uh, yeah, it's a big, big loss to our team and something that we uh, will, you know, probably not come to terms with fully until, uh, you know, weeks and months in the future when uh, when Lisa's uh, kicking ass and taking names in uh, in the battery storage and we're, we're still left picking up the pieces. But uh, yeah, we our vision at CEM is a more functional world and we're excited for uh, Lisa moving on and uh, bringing more function elsewhere uh, in a new capacity and a and a new opportunity. So yeah, we wish you all the best, and we're really excited. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Appreciate it. So I thought we would take the opportunity of Lisa's last podcast to have it also as Lisa's first podcast as a guest. And um, I'm I have kind of decided, and Lisa and I were chatting about this already in the fall uh, before all of her news, and we we've been really thinking about how can we refocus the podcast. And so we really want to have um, a refocusing of the Energy Radio podcast and really laser focus um, our content to really bring the audience help with the development stages of decarbonization projects. At CEM, we've always really prided ourselves on getting involved in the early stages. Uh, you've heard us talk about the stairway to heaven and our, our approaches to developing projects and you know how important it is to think through the critical due diligence steps and think through a project and define it and go through the permitting and flesh out the right technology and the right business case and all of that has been really important for us at CEM and so we're going to um, make the energy radio podcast really laser focused on um, those development stages and so we will have guests uh, like we have today or we'll have guests who represent equipment companies or uh, other contractors or other owners, um, same variety of guests, but really laser focused the discussion on project development. And so I thought, you know, really as a celebration of Lisa's contribution and and as a good first guest, uh, who better than somebody who's been leading a lot of our project development here at CEM and, and have Lisa Katz as our first guest. Um, so Lisa, maybe you know, allow me to interview you, but kind of first, any any initial thoughts on kind of refocusing of the podcast? And, um, you know, obviously we may have you back as a guest um, once you've you know, got your feet <laughs> settled at, at Convergent, but kind of initial reactions to kind of the refocusing and um, from the perspective of of being a co-host and, and being involved in project development. Yeah, no, I think it's great, Matt. Um, and part of the reason for that is I think we've sort of use this medium over the last couple of years to really educate our listeners and clients on, you know, just anything and everything really to do with the energy space. And we've been really broad with that. We've had, you know, conversations on, you know, small modular reactors and, you know, with, uh, well, the ISO and with Enbridge, we've sort of gone right across the map in terms of different technologies or utilities. And, you know, it's been all over the place. And I think people have really enjoyed that. Um, but one of the things that we, you know, know very well, I'm going to have to say something different as we, I guess. Well, I guess the we will mean something different on Monday when I start at, start at Converge. But anyways, sure. yes. um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've really, you know, been 
been very good at leading our clients through, you know, the project development steps, as we refer to it as sort of the stairway to heaven. And we know it really well, but I'm not sure that, you know, externally facing like clients necessarily always know it really well. When we're meeting with clients, we're often talking to them about it. Some of them have different terminology or different ways of doing that. And so having guests on the show to talk about what that means to them and how, you know, they might do things maybe slightly differently, um, but just how I think that will benefit the listener. I I think that that's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be eager to listen in to some of the episodes moving forward and maybe learn a few things from other people as well. That's the goal, right? It's it's just about sharing information and 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 making you know everybody a little bit smarter, a little bit more knowledgeable. And the project development stage and and the activities that go in, you know, prior really to um, a final investment decision, because that's that's you know at least in my definition what I see as project development. You know, all everything that leads up to making a final investment decision. Once you do that, certainly there's other things that you can do that will affect the project. But really, a lot of the impact is done, both positive and negative, um, in in that project development stage, right? And so I yeah, think that's why sure. this is this is so important um, for for us and 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 for our clients. So um, maybe, and we didn't. You know, because you're moving on and you're no longer acting as the executive producer, um, our level of preparation has dropped off dramatically, <laughs> which we will try to fix. But uh, so we don't have we don't have prep questions. We didn't socialize uh, That's okay. an, an agenda. Off the cuff. Uh, but yeah, I know you're you're good off the cuff. Is there a particular project development story uh, from your your time here at CEM that that comes to mind as as maybe a story you could tell that might be a good launching off point for more of our d- discussion. Is there a particular yeah. project where, where you were either, you know, leading it or a big part of that development that uh, you could walk us through and then we can pick it apart? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So uh, the one that always comes to mind is actually one of my first that I sold at CEM, which was a full EPC turnkey project with Sabic Innovative Plastics mm-hmm. at a Coburg. It's a three megawatt GA Buster project. Um, it's using 500 kilowatt Generax on it. Um, and it's basically a global adjustment mitigation or GA project. Um, and I learned a lot from that project. Um, I think, and I, I'm trying to remember, I started, I think it was in 2016. And I think I literally sold it either just before the Christmas holidays or just after. But mm. for that year, I was basically on a, the steep part of the learning curve, as Martin would say, right? right? Like, and I and I stayed on that curve because there were so many different objections and things that were taking place, you know, during the development of that project. It was unbelievable. So I think I'm trying to remember because every project has been just slightly different. But in that particular case, I think the client signed a memorandum of understanding, an okay. MOU. Um, we did a and little much- bit of work. How much definition, like when you came in, you know, how much definition was on the project? Was it an idea? Was there a, a sketch? Was there a concept? Like shortly yeah. before at that MOU stage, like how much definition was there on the project? Great question. There was there was zero, actually. Um, I ha- I remember speaking with, at the time it was John Heslenga and Eric Fernhout. They're since both retired. Uh, but they knew nothing about global adjustment, mm. um, zero. So I remember going in and I think at some point we had done maybe a detailed engineering study in the days of the PSUI incentive. Martin had uh, originally had contact with that client. So we knew them uh, and they knew CEM of CEM, uh, but they didn't know anything about global adjustment. And mm. so initially I walked in to John's office and uh, he and I got along really, really well because he rides motorcycles. Uh, actually, so does <laughs> Eric Fernhout. And, um, you know, I basically educated John on what global adjustment was and the benefits of um, basically coming off the grid during those peak periods from a revenue perspective. And, you know, he he just couldn't believe it. Like, what are you talking about? In those days, it was like $550,000 per year per megawatt. Like, it was pretty substantial. And and, and what was it that, you know, th- those were, you know, smart guys running a, running a tight ship. I mean, w- why do you think there was such kind of a gap between, you know, what was actually happening and then their knowledge of it? You know, because you really have to find what the problem is before you can bring what the solution is right so it sounds like you're you're raising awareness around the problem first 
Yeah, I definitely was. And I'm not sure if it was just because of their level of busyness, like with their facility, or because they really weren't paying too much attention to their energy costs, which, you know, are a combination of, you know, electricity and natural gas for that matter. Um, they didn't seem to really have a good handle on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, once I educated them, um, you know, they, they had some internal discussion. I think they forwarded off a presentation, initial presentation, which, which I had used basically to kind of educate them. And then we went through, uh, after them having them sign an MOU, an initial investigation to basically look at their utility bills over the course of a 12-month period mm. and basically figure out how much uh, electricity they were consuming typically during those peak periods. And we were doing that because we didn't want to, I mean, oversize the system. So the, the system that we installed, it runs in parallel with the utility as opposed to being islanded behind the meter. And um, yeah, we didn't want to leave too many kilowatts or megawatts just in the parking lot that couldn't be monetized. So we went through this process of understanding historically, what did that look like? And right. we, we mapped that out based on when peaks typically would happen. Um, which was really, you know, sort of June through September and January and February, and uh, came up with essentially a high-level pro forma and presented that pro forma to them, which essentially showed essentially what that payback NPV and IRR were going to be. Right. And when they thought, you know, saw the the payback of at that time, it was something like four years. They just were like blown away. Like, what mm -hmm. are you talking about? We can make, you know, there's that much money that could be recouped on this. Like, we had no idea. And right. that got the interest of their senior leadership team. Gotcha. And from then on, it was a kind of a, a combination of a budgetary PC estimate then we took them through a geotech analysis and locates. We had conversations with Union Gas. Mm. Uh, we then went through a connection impact assessment with Hydro One. Um, I'm trying to remember if there's a secondary utility. No, I think they're direct connect. That's right. um, and uh, we basically got them to a point where they kind of had all of the information in front of them. You know, they knew with the, with the remote trip and anti-idling, you know, that connection cost was basically going to be they knew what, you know, the new station upgrade cost was going to be from Enbridge. I'm not sure if it was actually Union Gas back then. It might have been <laughs> still. I think, so. I, think, I think it was, yeah. I think it might have been. Um, you know, and then they had essentially at that point, um, because we had so much visibility on, you know, through, through all of the different engineering work that we had done with drawings and so on, we were able to present them with a firm fixed cost. And so they had all of that, and it was very well understood. Um, and then, you know, the project basically progressed through that. But we basically de-risked it in the sense that it's not like the mm. client decided to go forward with it before seeing what that CIA, you know, cost was going to be or that the uh, um, CCA or CCA costs coming back from the the utility. Right. So it, so you, you have this process of, you know, articulating the problem or educating them on the problem. And then there's this albeit extremely high level concept of, hey, you know, looking through, okay, you, you got a problem, it's really expensive, but what can we really do about it? Looking at, and, and somehow you get to kind of a size of the system, you know, really yeah. nothing more than a size. And then that size allows you to build a, a business case. And that was kind of, kind of a gate uh, of, okay, we want to look at this further. And yeah. then there was, then there was a process of, you know, as you call it, de-risking the project, basically going through externalities, putting together, a, you know, quantifying what those externalities are going to cost and quantifying what the onsite work is going to cost so that they had, you know, a second gate where they could say, okay, we've, we understand um, what it's going to cost and it's still in line with kind of what we expected at the original gate and, you know, giddy up, let's go. Yep. Yep. That was exactly wow. it. Yeah. And w along the way, what, you know, what was one or two of things that were like, oh, man, this is never going to happen or, you know, because <laughs> it's I, I, one of the phrases I often say is project development is not for the faint of heart. Like it yeah. it, it requires a lot of, you know, uh, courage and it requires a lot of, you know, stamina and determination. Do, do some things come to mind in terms of real, you know, wrinkles or real objections or roadblocks along the way? 
Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I guess the first one was at some point, um, again, I think it was Union Gas at the time. So they weren't really sure if they could actually offer that the capacity, gas capacity to run the gensets. So that on its own would have been a you know a big hurdle. And, you know, thank God that and we wouldn't have done it because, you know, it's just that that's the way that CM operates. But thank God that the client wouldn't have tried to move forward without mm. having somebody like us really helping them through that process because well, there are one or two cogens in Ontario that were built without having gas capacity, as we know, right? right. So, yeah. uh, you know, we we did de-risk that piece. Um, but after some more conversations with Union Gas, they did end up providing uh, a confirmation that they could provide the, the capacity. But then there ended up being um, sort of a, so there was a, and I'm I, hopefully I get the story right, because I'm not sure if I have it 100%, it's been a few years, but Basically, from the station to the with the underground piping, uh, gas piping to go to the various meters. No, sorry, the station was basically the existing station. The original station was in Sabic's yard, mm. and and but Enbridge or sorry Union Gas wanted to move that outside of their fence line, essentially, mm. which basically would mean that Sabic would take ownership of that gas piping underneath the ground that was originally going to their meters and there was a that was a big deal for Sabic because you know they didn't know what the condition of the pipe was how many more years Mm -hmm. did it have so there's whole investigation and study that went on with Union Gas where they had to basically provide that information to Sabic and it was like weeks upon weeks upon weeks and, um, you know, they finally got to a point where they were able to convince their management that they would be okay assuming that responsibility. But that was a very big deal for them. Like, they were right. taking on more than they were thinking they had to take on with the project, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um, and then from what I recall, the station ended up being more expensive than they thought it was going to be um, as well. And I think that turned out to be uh, partway through the project, actually. But I think that the 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 line was by far the biggest mm. thing. Um, and anything on the electrical interconnect that kind of came up as because those are you know you've talked about them quite a bit and that's yeah. those, that's what we focus on the, the, those externalities those external stakeholders uh, they're they're what you know are the hardest to control in in development right? Yeah, for sure. I I don't remember and I I, I remember on another project with Timmins and District Hospital there was a definitely a kind of a, it was a big eye opener as far as costs were concerned. I don't remember there being too much of an issue there. It was it was almost right on the nose though in terms of where we had estimated it to be the cost of of okay. you know those basically those two components which was anti idling and remote trip. Um, but the client was sort of expecting that it was going to come in under that. The other piece that was a little bit eye opening I remember and this is not this is not new but we had to sort of educate the client on it. When you get the uh, cost recovery agreement back from the utility, the it's really an estimate, and it's estimated at fifty percent. Yeah. If if you if you want to go through a further review and get to a seventy percent, it's going to cost you some more money to do that and more time. So the we the client you know they just couldn't believe you're telling me it's going to cost X amount of dollars, and we this is only like plus minus fifty percent like. This could go crazy. Like this could be crazy, right? So they they were a little bit uncomfortable about that, and so we had to look back at all of our projects historically and oh, say, yeah. where did where have most of our projects landed at the end of the day? Like when when projects are constructed and commissioned, have they landed in pretty close proximity to that estimate, or have they been you know over or under considerably? And I think what we found is that most of them came into sort of a plus minus 10% range. And so just by having our expertise in the cogeneration power generation market over really the course of, well, we weren't quite 20 years at that point, but having that data available really convinced Sabic that, okay, we feel a little more comfortable about this. But when they first saw that, they had no idea. And you sign up, you sign up for that and you basically you know, give the the utility a check for a certain dollar amount to start them on everything. And that was just, you know, another piece that was like, wow, we're, we're sending in a check for X amount of dollars and this could end up going, you know, 
again, a lot being being a lot higher than what they're estimating. So they, yeah. they had to get their senior management group their head around that piece for sure. You mentioned that a couple of times, and that was one of the things I wanted to go to next was you had two individuals at the plant level that you were dealing with, but presumably there was you know different levels of approval required yes. on this project within within the organization. What did that look like? In this particular case, and it's it was been a little bit different uh, for every project that I've worked on. But in this particular case, there was a gentleman that was sitting out of one of their U.S. offices, and towards the end, when I say towards the end, we had already done we already had our discussions with Union Gas. We'd already done the uh, had discussions and and received the uh, connection uh, cost from the utility. Uh, there was this gentleman by the name of Chris, and I can't remember what his last name was, but anyways, Chris was involved from their U.S. office, and I essentially had to almost represent everything that mm -hmm. I did with John and Eric right back to what is global adjustment. And he was somewhat familiar with demand response programs in the U.S., so it wasn't completely new to him, but he just couldn't believe the dollars that were available. Um, that was, you know, pretty shocking to him. And then he really had some questions on the financials and understanding, um, you know, uh, how accurate our numbers were and how we were projecting our numbers over the course of a 10 or 15 year period and where we were getting that data. Um, and outside of that, um, he was involved really uh, with the contract right through to, yeah, contractual signing with us. So right. um, that was sort of the next big step or not. I wouldn't call it a hurdle, but it was the re-education of you know, another member of their team that, you know, I had to start with, you know, almost from day one and bring him through the whole process and everything that we had done to basically make him and by virtue, you know, SABIC more comfortable um, with, with giving us the go ahead on the project. In your view, how, how much of the challenges we face in project development, and we're coming at it from the perspective of um, a service provider or, or a, you know, EPC contractor or what, whatever our role is. But how much of the challenges are there in aligning, you know, our approach to developing capital projects and, and the terminology that we use, aligning that with, you know, our client's approach to developing projects and their terminology that they use? Yeah. Has that caused us challenges over the years? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, you know, you'll hear fell one, fell two, you'll hear different kind of things from different clients internally in terms of their sort of gate processes. And you sort of have to take that back and compare that to some of the terminology that we use. And some of the ways that they've developed projects might have been great and have applied well to, I don't know, a cooler or a, or a chiller or a boiler project, for example, but maybe not a generation project, which is just slightly different. And so understanding how they need and, and the steps that we would take to de-risk them, you know, from basically moving too quickly on the project and not having all of the variables known, um, there is a little bit of a challenge with that. And, and certainly the higher up in the organization you go, the more challenge in some ways that you have because the, the people on the ground, the plant managers and engineers, they've heard a lot of this and they kind of get it. But then there's different obstacles as you sort of climb up the ladder, whether it's financial or maybe technical or, you know, that you need to sort of um, talk in a different language, right, to the various groups or people um, to sort of get, again, that same level of comfort. Yeah, for sure. And um, <clears throat> I think sometimes, too, you, depending on who you're dealing with, you know, what the, the solutions to the problems that we are proposing are are often you know much larger in terms of capital than than they would typically you know deal with if they are you oh, know, yeah. even a plant manager or otherwise um, they might not do a ten million dollar project you know every year that's that's foreign to them right and so yep. our process to de-risking those projects is is the right process um, but it might be you know if they are just if they have a maintenance budget that they're managing that's not near what we're talking about. Yeah, the, the, there might be a lot of things that we're proposing that you know are are wise, but maybe seem like overkill, right, or just overwhelming even. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if you know if if somebody was you know attempting, and I emphasize attempting to fill your your, your role after you leave here, um, 
Um, what are some kind of lessons learned that you would impart on them uh, in terms of um, project development? I'm not I'm not asking for lessons learned on how to deal with you know uh, crazy bosses <laughs> or anything like that, um, but lessons <laughs> learned around uh, project development. You know, you've been doing it now for a while. You're you're going to go do more of it, I think, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, um, what are some lessons learned if you can distill you know all the 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 scrapes and bumps and bruises you've experienced along the last little while oh god there's so many uh and where do i start um i mean i guess the 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 first thing is you really have to know you have to understand if you're talking to the right people right off the get-go right like Mm -hmm. you could spend a lot of time speaking with the wrong people and it never gets anywhere because they don't have any influence in the organization you also need as martin would call it um a proponent at site mm-hmm. you need somebody who's going to push it along because you can talk till you're blue in the face to somebody maybe they like the idea they get the idea but until they can feel it like you know in their bones that this is something that they feel is right for their organization to pursue you can be you know mm-hmm. you could be spending and wasting a whole bunch of time so i think like that's really the the, the, the first part right and as you get more experience, you're able to sort of sniff that stuff out a little bit faster than maybe, you know, even I did when I first joined. I mean, um, what's the phrase Martin always used to use? Um, well, he used to say, like, you could shoot at everything, right? Right, right. And, 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 but, but you have to be pretty selective at what you're shooting at. Otherwise, you could be spending, you know, way too much time. And, you know, you could be focusing your efforts on 10 really good clients or, you know, maybe one or two out of 20 decent clients, right? Yeah. So, you know, understanding that and figuring that piece out in this business, I think is key. Finding the right person to drive things up the ladder is key. Um, Understanding who the people are that they have to influence is also Mm. key. And meeting with those individuals, if you can, you know, pretty soon off the bat, because if I would have met Chris, for example, you know, at Sabic earlier on, I probably could have saved myself some of the pain <laughs> of having to re-educate, you know, right. on global adjustment. But I think it's also important because then they start to understand the project in the early phases of development, and they're with you the whole way. And if you know that they're going to be the final decision makers, having them on board, not necessarily being part of every meeting, but certainly in the earlier phases of the project and understanding how you as the firm or company are de-risking that uh, on their behalf, the project on their behalf, I think is key. Um, Another piece is really, you know, helping the client identify the risks on a project. Um, You know, we at CEM and frankly, anybody in the energy space, we wanna see successful projects, not just projects, right? It's just like that cogeneration facility. Well, again, there's, I think, two at least in Ontario where they were built, but they didn't have gas capacity. Well, if somebody would have guided the client properly and told them about everything that needed to be done to de-risk the project up front because they've been in the space or have had the experience and know it well enough, that facility would never have been built. Like, that's just you know, you know, trying to get rid of those assets and that stranded equipment is just, you know, another, you know, a big pain, but it also tarnishes your name as a company when you're trying to, you know, really progress and 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 basically, uh, you know, build business in the space. So, yeah, understanding that de-risk piece. And then the other part is probably, and again, I'm, there's so many things, but Another one that comes to mind is speaking in the client's language as it relates to the way that they develop the project themselves. Mm. You know, are they referring to specific gate stages that are, you know, maybe FEL1, FEL2? Uh, What does that look like and compare, you know, against in terms of the way that you talk to projects typically within your own organization? Maybe it's the AACE classification standards you're using and you want to compare this is, you know, correlates with this and this correlates with that, you know, try to understanding that and then really building, understanding what the client needs um, and how they develop projects and sort of coming up with a custom, customizing your development of the project to meet those specific standards. I think those are sort of the basics. Yeah. Um, you know, we could probably get in a lot more technical as well, but I think, you know, just at, at a high level, those things are key. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I love your emphasis on de-risking. I mean, project development really is the practice of, you know, pushing projects forward to a point where you've de-risked it to the right level of, you know, because if you if you de-risk it to zero, the projects never get built. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're you're, you're never going to get there, or you're going to get so much cost into the project it'll never happen, right? It's it's the it's the art and the science of you know pushing a project forward while you know eliminating the right risks or or or, or identifying that they can't be they can't be mitigated and the project shouldn't happen, right? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, are there are you mentioned uh, some some. Uh, you know, other organizations and institutions. Are, are there some resources that, you know, beyond kind of our organization that have really proved to be, you know, helpful, whether it's organizations or different, you know, publications or other people that have really been been helpful and instrumental in, in your project development efforts? Well, one of the documents actually I, I really like, I refer to AACE. So that's the um, Association for, I think, Advancement of Cost Engineering. Um, they, I, I really like their, you know, what, what they have, it, you can literally type in AACE cost estimate in Google and you can, this sort of PDF will come up. Um, and it really helps guide you through the different estimates, class estimates and the level of project definition, you know, methodologies, the expected accuracy range and, you know, all of that good stuff. And I think that's a really fundamental document for people to understand the level of engineering that's involved to get to a certain cost accuracy. Um, because, you know, in my early days, I remember dealing with a couple of clients, I will not name their names, <laughs> who would say, you know, well, no, Lisa, like a plus minus 50%, like pro forma, that's not going to work for me. Like I need something plus minus 10%, but they, yet they didn't want to spend any money right. to get there. Right. Well, you know, that's, that's not going to work. Like there's, right. you have to put some work in to get to that level. Right. right. And so understanding, you know, and, and letting a, making a client understand what that looks like. And so I, I like this, that particular publication or that specific document because it's external to us, but yet many consultants refer to it. Uh, it puts everybody on the same page from a language and, you know, uh, a language and well, yeah, perspective. And um, I think just helps uh, guide people. Uh, appropriately. Cool, cool. Any other? Uh, I want to shift gears and, and look forward for a minute. But uh, any other kind of thoughts or stories or um, you know, kind of lessons learned that pop up from your time here at CEM, specific to project development? Oh, well, I'm I'm sure I, I'm sure if I had more time, I could think of some others. But I think we've covered at least the basic ones that come up to the top of my head, anyway. Oh, hold on a second. Sorry, I do have one more. This was kind of interesting. Um, this actually was was on SABIC too, believe it or not. So the SABIC facility, um, which was, I believe, an old GE facility before it became SABIC, mm. it, it dated back to, I don't know, 1950s, maybe, maybe even just a little bit beyond that. But the stuff that was buried underground was unbelievable and the you know you, you you when you think about burying pipe piping or cabling underground you sort of just think oh yeah i'm gonna go underneath the roadway and i'm just gonna go straight right well you don't like that then you get on the project and you realize and we we had some um good imaging of you know the some of the underground um utilities that were there so we kind of knew that we would have to hydrovac as opposed to just you know right. go in and dig and right but understanding what you have subsurface makes all the difference and the reality is you can only get to a certain level of detail there and then all of a sudden you find some other stuff you know because it's not it's just not picked up on some of the imaging um but that that subsurface risk is really real um, and I don't think a lot of people necessarily pay attention mm -hmm. to it. They think they can just put a pad anywhere and, um, you know, and then, and that creates a whole another issue, you know, set of issues. So, um, yeah, that, that subsurface de-risking that piece and understanding where you can actually put equipment and can't put equipment and the best place to put equipment and so on and so forth. Those are, those, that's a pretty big, uh, lesson for me, for sure. 
Yeah, subsurface risk should always scare people in project development. Yeah. Well, I, I, until, you know, even even when you think you've got it figured out, it should still yeah. scare you. Oh, yeah. Um, once you're out of the once you're out of the ground, then you can you know breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Um, I you know I'll, before we transition, I'll tell one story, and I'm not sure if I've told the story on the podcast. You you know the story I'm going to tell. Um, but it you know it's a good lesson in you know a good reminder to all of us developing technical projects that at the end of the day, you know decarbonization projects like what we do are are technical in nature, but the decisions to do them and the way they get implemented are, are through people, you know, at least for the time being, artificial intelligence isn't there yet. And so at the heart of it are people who are making these decisions. And I th I'm no psychologist, but us people make decisions based on emotions and then we rationalize it with facts, right? And so you, we all have stories of, you know, emotions of people saying, I want this project. Um, you know, there's a large uh, industrial company that we did a project with, and I, you know, part of the emotional decision making was a screw you to the local electric utility, as an example. But in in this this case, you know, I this was early, very early in your tenure, um, and I remember you and I went to northern or yeah yeah northern Ontario uh, to a mine, and uh, we were trying to sell a project against another company that may or may not sell yellow iron. Um, and we were we were selling orange iron at the time as part of our project, and we had this big presentation. It went really it went reasonably well, but it was hard to read the room. And I remember packing up, um, and for some reason, we we had been the week before at the packager of this uh, you know equipment, and so with the equipment we were selling as part of our project, um, we had been at the packager. And so I'm packing up after this meeting at the mine, and the plant manager, whatever mine manager, is there, and I'm chatting with him. And and out of the corner of the eye, I pick up that you're chatting with two other, you know, guys who reported to the plant manager, but were pretty key. And you're showing them paint chips of the colors <laughs> that uh, the the enclosure could be. And you know, it occurred to me not in the moment, but after, you know, and and that we we had a good presentation. It wasn't the only reason, but you got them thinking emotionally about you know, what the project would look like and what colors they could pick and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and thinking past the decision to how are we going to implement and emotionally they were already in the implementation stage. And and I think that had some contribution to uh, their decision. So I, it's a good lesson for me <laughs> always to, you know, get people thinking about, you know, the emotional implementation and how they're going to feel when it's happening and when it's in place. Um, and I thought you did that really well with the whole paint chip story. So yeah, thank you. Uh, it was really funny. I, I mentioned this to you and Natalie the other day, but uh, I was cleaning up my office in Oakville, and I actually came across the original paint swap options. That's awesome. And That's so cool. I said to Natalie, "I'm gonna, I'll give it to you. You can do what you like with it, but it's, uh, it belongs to CEM as far as I'm concerned now." <laughs> and uh, but you're, you're right. Like, and, and and if you think about, you know, conversely with other um, markets, like think about real estate right? You deal with a real estate agent, what happens? They get that open or not the open house, but that meeting or whatever, so that you can view the property. And, you know, they have an understanding of how many bathrooms you want, how many bedrooms you want and all this good stuff. And then you start to picture yourself seeing your furniture in there. Oh yeah, this closet's got enough room for my clothes. Oh yeah, three car garage. Okay. So two cars and a workshop or whatever you're into, right? The point right. is, they, they try, real estate agents try, and they're trained and groomed this way to get the client to be thinking emotionally, not just about the financial commitment and, you know, the location and everything else. It's really about, can you picture your stuff in this house, right? Yeah, and exactly. and you're right, it, it does help to get it across the, uh, across the board, so. And that doesn't just apply to those providing services or construction, but it's, you know, internally as people are, helping you know move their decarbonization projects forward with their senior management you know same thing you know th th right. they're going to make the same decisions the same way so um cool yeah so so you know we're recording this on a thursday tomorrow you'll uh, punch your time card for the last time at cem and uh, yeah. i think monday you start in your new role is that right monday i do i do yeah, no, yes no, re no rest for the wicked i guess no um so do you have kind of um, you know, clarity, uh, you know, it's going to be similar stage of a project life cycle, that project development, like talk to us about kind of, yeah. to, the, to the extent that you know what's coming, um, talk to us about what's what's next for you and, and where you see, you know, what activities project development wise, you know, you're going to be doing. 
yeah, no, that's that's uh, that sounds great. So, yeah, conversion does things a little bit different um, than in some ways that I'm used to, but it makes sense. They're a project developer. Um, they're backed by a large equity partner. Um, they've been doing this for 10 years, have been very successful. And because of the, you know, the number of demand response programs really in the U U.S. and the fact that there are, and so there's, I mean, great projects both behind the meter as well as in the in front of the meter. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that, you know, frankly, we are consuming more and more electricity every day. Um, the forecast of electricity consumption is, you know, obviously going up as we when we look at everything from electrifying more processes to, you know, driving more electric cars and, you know, all of that stuff. And while battery energy storage and solar PV are certainly not, you know, the end all be all. There's going to be a, a, a you know varying technologies that are going to be required to decarbonize our world, as we all know, you know, and as we've talked about many times on this podcast. Um, it's interesting because the storage component specifically really provides, um, you know, clients the ability to store that energy in some way, shape, or form and utilize it at the best time, you know, that what makes sense for them. So if you think about a utility, for example, there's so much solar and wind going in, um, you know, really right across the United States and obviously in certain areas more than others. But the sun shines only when the sun shines and the wind blows only when the wind blows. So, you know, what do you do when you don't have that? Well, you have certain sources, right? You can use battery energy storage. You could maybe use a GTG or a recip engine, maybe using renewable fuels if you want to keep that carbon neutral, right? But but the reality is the cost of battery energy storage continue to go down. The cost of solar PV continue to come down. And so there's more and more applications for those technologies. And the battery energy storage component specifically really bridges the gap of when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Mm -hmm. So the utilities are really looking at large projects, um, you know, like 100 megawatt plus projects. And then the CNI space is, you know, for behind the meter projects is still, you know, very eager to develop and really, you know, contribute what they can because of their sustainability objectives. So the fact that they would have solar PV, you know, on their rooftop or, you know, ground mounted, and they do couple that with battery energy storage and find a way to basically discharge that energy at the right time so that it makes, you know, sense on the pro forma. You know, it does two things. It's reducing their energy costs, their utility bills, right? And because of the nature of the technology being carbon neutral is decarbonizing their facilities as well. And, you know, when you look at, I mean, just about every Fortune 500, even Fortune 100 company for that matter these days has a public, you know, plan in place where they've committed to becoming carbon neutral or, um, decarbonizing a certain amount of their efforts or their their um, their facilities uh, by a certain time, right? So that to me was really exciting. I mean, it's exciting just I think in the space in general, regardless of what technology you're looking at. Um, so uh, yeah, I can't remember if that answered your question. Now <laughs> I think I kind of went around, but anyway. Yeah, no, uh, and 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 the you know yeah, it reminds me of a story where coming home from hockey practice Wednesday morning with my son and we drive um, not far from a large combined cycle plant and uh, it was clearly running and my son says hey look at that smoke dad and I had to educate him well it's not smoke it's you know water vapor and yeah and then we had th but then we had that same discussion about hey listen we're you know because he he knew that that wasn't you know renewable and I said you know wind and solar and he'd been learning about that at school and well, what do you do at night when it's not windy and then we talked yeah. about you know energy storage right and and it's, you know, it's a part of everybody's conversation and, and it's happening. It's here. Right. And so I guess I'm curious, do you have a sense of kind of we talked about, you know, de-risking projects and the emotional decision making process? And yeah. do you have a sense of what you can kind of take, you know, from what you've learned here and, and start to apply kind of day one? You know, what is there going to some things will be similar and presumably some things will be quite different. Yeah, some things will be similar. Some things will definitely be different. I would compare it a little bit more to the days when I started at CEM and we did, you know, we were getting clients to sign memorandums of understanding. 
Um, that's essentially sort of convergence, uh, you know, method as far as I've seen so far, where basically, you know, if you're, if the client's interested and they're comfortable and they want to move it forward, they would sign an MOU and then convergent would basically develop it to a certain point. They would provide them with essentially what the, um, you know, the savings would be, whether that's a shared savings model or a PPA. Okay. And if the client is interested in pursuing it beyond that, then basically it's kind of a go. Um, it's a pretty, it's a fairly slick process, but of course, you know, they're developed, they're putting a lot of money out there themselves to develop the project. Whereas, right. you know, conversely with, with us as a C, as a consulting and engineering firm, you know, we're getting consulted obviously to do, you know, things on behalf of many developers and clients and guide them up the ladder and de-risk things as we're sort of going there. They do everything sort of under that MOU stage. Um, and have those conversations with the utility, um, you know, as a as a way of sort of, you know, just uh, accelerating the project uh, right. as opposed to, you know, this kind of smaller work packages that sort of get you there. Cool. Well, it's it's it, and, and do you have a target? You said CNI. Is there a target market for you? Yeah, CNI space. Um, so behind the meter, and it's basically um, the ISO New England area. So that basically encompasses uh, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and I think Rhode Island. Right on. Neither neither a road nor an island. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is the most densely populated uh, state in the. Uh, in the country, I learned that the other day, Rhode Island. So maybe you knew, oh, knew yeah. that already. So I didn't know that actually. Well, no, interesting. Cool. Uh, well, uh, and and um, no, that, that's very exciting. Uh, we're we're excited for you, and um, definitely a growing market. And do, do you see kind of that market in Ontario as well, or or kind of not right now, or right right now, no, at least behind the meter, because. You know, global adjustment, you know, when I started six years ago, and again, it was worth roughly $550,000 per megawatt. I don't know the last numbers off the top of my head, but we're maybe at 400, 450, somewhere in that range. Um, but there's just been so much change in Ontario. You know, the government during COVID, they froze the peak demand factor. So basically put everything on hold for a year. Um, the, the rate continues to decline. So basically right now what's happening is, um, GA or global adjustment continues to go down and the hourly Ontario energy price is going up. So, you know, it's a little, the, the way that people are managing their energy costs is a little bit different, even and the, 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 the benefits of the GA program, so to speak, are not quite the same as what they were, you know, in 2016 when I started. Um, so behind the meter, I don't see it right now. Um, Front of the meter, however, as part of the you know ISO RFP convergent, of course, is part of that. I won't be touching it because I'm all I'm all behind the meter as opposed to front of the meter. Uh, but their team is is working on that, and I think there's some good opportunities there. Um, whether the Ontario market comes back at some point, who knows? Right. Who knows? Yep. Time will tell. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, we wish you all the best, and we know you'll be um, successful there, and and you'll uh, you'll do a great job with all these projects, and and with and you'll do a great job for the team at Convergence. So, um, very very exciting for you, and and yeah, just thank you for uh, for being our first guest um, as, on your last uh, Energy Radio. You were our first guest in our uh, renewed focus on project development for you know bringing value to our listeners on their decarbonization project development steps um and moreover thank you for uh, everything you've done for for martin and, and for myself and you know for the cem team over the years it's uh, been a real pleasure to work closely with you and get to know you and and of course your family as well and and have you part of our family for these six years and you know you'll be You'll be sorely missed around here, but we know you're on to, to bigger and better, and um, you'll you'll do a great job there as well. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Matt. It really has been a uh, a very fun uh, six years, and a six years really filled with you know great learning opportunity. Um, you know, if anywhere one were to look at my resume, I came from the environmental space before I came into energy. 
So CEM was my first, we'll call it, you know, step in the in the energy space. And the amount that I've learned in six years is incredible. Um, I think Martin has a little bit of a joke about this. How does he say it? You you come to work every day and you get to have an education for free or something like this. Right, I don't yeah, know. It's something it, like that. That's right. Yeah. It's like, it's it like really being, is. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's true because, you know, we CEM really does have a ton of great people um, from all sorts of different spaces and backgrounds. Um, and I've had the, uh, I've been very fortunate to really pick up from a lot of those people and just listen as much as I possibly could. And uh, with great leadership, of course, from yourself and Martin and uh, and many of the others within the organization as you're shaking your head, you're not sure, but you're sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, and also working with great people like Mark, who uh, frankly have just made me, you know, look and sound good even over the last, you know, six years. Well, I guess a little less than that if you consider how many years we've had the podcast. But nonetheless, it's been it's been uh, great working with Mark as well. Well, you've made it easy, Lisa. Thank you so much for uh, including me in all kinds of things too. You've you've taught me a lot too. So, uh, as Matt said, you're going to be missed and. Uh, you know, congratulations and good luck with everything you do in the future and, and keep in touch. Right. So oh, you know, everything's will. going. I certainly will. At the end of the day, uh, now that I'm in Oakville, St. Catharines is all of a 45 minute drive for me. So we'll have to do lunch at some point. Absolutely. Awesome. And uh, to our listeners, that was the voice of uh, our, our producer, our man behind the glass, Mr. Mark Charbonneau. He doesn't often make an appearance on this forum, but he does in many of our other forums. So you may recognize uh, him from such programs as Energy News uh, and uh, formerly the, the Energy Roundtable. Um, and, and maybe, Mark, moving forward, um, you know, we'll, we'll get you more on the uh, Energy Radio because otherwise it's just me and, uh, you know, <laughs> fly, flying solo as the host. I'll, I'll never be able to fill Lisa's shoes, but I'll right. uh, I'll come in for the I'll represent the layman. How about that? I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. uh, make, make sure make sure we're not uh, we're not making it too. That might that might be a segment. You know, right at the end of the podcast, you come in and you ask you know one or two things you didn't understand about what we talked about. That's actually a good idea. There you go. <laughs> really <laughs> good learning opportunity. I would definitely take Matt up on this. All right, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, this was uh, season two. I think our first season was like three years long and 84 episodes. Uh, this is season two, episode one of our renewed focus on the project development aspect of decarbonization projects. Until next time, which will be next week, uh, we wish you all the best. Uh, take care. <laughs>